what does the love of God actually look like? Is it modern love or is it something different? And I'd like to suggest that yes, God loves us gently and he loves us tenderly with compassion and kindness and patience. Has anybody ever experienced the radical patience of God in their life, right? The kindness of God in their life, the goodness of God in their life. He does all those things and there's zero doubt about that. That's why we can sing songs like how he loves and it's absolutely true and absolutely needed. But he also loves us fiercely. He also has zeal for his father's house. Passion for his father's house still consumes him. All right, so in 2007, my wife and I and a a group of friends planted a church. And when we planted this church, our first service was in October of 2007. We pastored this church for about a decade. During that time, especially early on, we had a really high value for creativity. Creativity in uh, not just expressions outside of Sunday mornings, but creativity on Sunday mornings. We did a lot of things that would be considered to be unorthodox, not theologically unorthodox, but maybe liturgically unorthodox in terms of it wasn't just three songs and a sermon and communion, and that's fine, but we did a lot of things. In fact, I taught people to sort of expect the unexpected. Our norm was not to have any sort of consistency. It was to have a different style of service pretty much every week, and I won't go into all the things we did. But how many of you know that we serve a very creative God, right? I mean, if you want proof of that, just take a look at the duck-billed platypus. So that's it's my thing, maybe. I've always loved that. It's like a weird little thing. What was God's like? I'm going to take this beaver and then this duck and combine them, and you're going to laugh. So he has a sense of humor, too. But there's creativity, right? And so we value that. One of the things that we did uh, three different on three different occasions over that period of time was I... Uh, had a couple friends who were phenomenal painters. I mean, like well-known, phenomenal, phenomenal painters. They were uh, really gifted in a lot of different ways in terms of the sort of paintings that they produced. Uh, But one unique talent they both had was the ability to produce really exceptionally beautiful paintings in an hour. So they could do live paintings. So I had both of them in uh, on different occasions, and our whole Sunday morning service was people showed up, we said, good morning, this is what we're doing, and then uh, we turned it over to these friends of mine on different occasions, so just one at a time, and we had uh, set up, I had curated an iPod playlist, anybody remember the iPod playlists, curated those, and we would hit play, and it was an hour basically worth of worship slash soaking music, and they would create a painting as we just observed and really listened to the lyrics and, and saw what they were doing. And so uh, one of my friends came in and did this, and he set up, you know, dead center here, and he has this big, I mean, these aren't little, you know, canvases. Uh, these are big, big canvases. And he's got his paint, and he's got his stuff, and the cloths are all draped around the stage, and he, he starts to create this painting. And it's about an hour that we're going to spend, a little over an hour and he's just doing his thing, and the music, it's beautiful, and we're just, I'm just loving every aspect of this, watching him create, listening to the lyrics of these songs, and just meditating on the goodness, and the beauty, and the creativity of God, and so he goes on, and a lot of times, if you've ever watched, you know, like a Bob Ross, right? So Bob Ross, he kind of is going to tell you up front what he's going to paint, and you're going to see it, and you're going to watch as it sort of comes together, 
right? There's definitely a point in which you recognize in his paintings, oh, that's what that is, or it's going to be that. He's obviously famous for nature scenes. So you recognize, oh, that, those colors up there, the way that those look super abstract, oh, I see how those are clouds and there's mountains in front of them and, and all that stuff, and it's really cool. And so um, having seen my, my friends and this particular friend do this before, I knew that in their paintings, there was also a similar point. It began to be as very sort of abstract, and they're laying foundations and layering things up. And then at some point, you're like, oh. It's that point of recognition where you're like, oh, that's what that's going to be. Oh, my gosh, I can't. Oh, that's incredible. So we get into this service. And like I said, it's about an hour, hour 15. Let's just say that we're down to the last five minutes, the last song. And I'm looking at this canvas and I'm kind of attuned normally to what they do, and I have literally no idea what this jumble of colors is. No clue. And I'm sitting there a little bit nervous. And I'm like, okay, look, I know, Bill, that like, you can do abstract stuff, and that's cool, but like, that's not what I was looking for. I'm cool with your expression and freedom, but like, hopefully this turns into something. So the last song starts, and it still is nothing like, that I can identify whatsoever. And so just kind of like, okay, I know him, I trust him, I love him, he'll explain it, you know, he'll figure it out. And so we get to like literally where there's two minutes left in the last song, still no clue, right? And I'm married to an artist, so I have a decent eye, okay, where I can identify things and look for stuff, but I have no clue. And then with two minutes left, he takes, it's a big canvas, he grabs a hold of the canvas, and he flips it, it would, and he flips it from... He was painting upside down the whole time. He flips it, and it's this incredible sort of abstract, but very recognizable silhouette of the face of Jesus with all these colors behind it. If you've ever seen um, like the Shroud of Turin and you see, you understand what that is, the sort of abstract, but yet very recognizable, discernible sort of outline and shadows. And it was just really incredibly powerful. And then he added just a couple things to it in the last two minutes that just all of a sudden it popped and you were like, oh my goodness, like that is incredible. So we are, as Pastor Jordan said, in a two-week mini-series that I'm going to be doing called The Love of God and the Fear of God. And I want to read you the series summary. If you didn't catch it in the, monthly, or in the weekly newsletter that went out, I want to read you this series summary. And it says this, over the past 150 years in the West, two primary images of God have dominated both the social and the religious landscape. The first is that of a tyrannical ruler who was sitting in heaven with a storehouse of lightning bolts, just waiting to throw them down at those who step out of line. The second is that of a lovesick God who was infatuated with humans to the point that he has no backbone and condones any and all behavior out of some divine fear of abandonment. It goes without saying that both images are extreme and that neither present an accurate picture of the biblical God as revealed in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In this two-week miniseries, we will work to present a balanced picture of a God who loves us deeply, but is also to be taken seriously in terms of who he is and what he asks of us. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 21 say this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. So he actually takes the time to make a whip and drove all, the all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. 
and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So let's do a brief verse by verse, very brief walkthrough of a couple of these things. Just gonna set up our context where we're going today. Verse 13 says, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. This is one of three major Jewish festivals that took place annually. And it comes from the book of Exodus. They had celebrated this for thousands of years. Exodus 12, 12 through 14 is where we get the name, where they got the name Passover. And it says this, On that same night, and this is as God is cursing the land of Egypt and cursing Pharaoh through Moses, the plagues. It says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So they were celebrating that because they were God's chosen people, if they sacrificed a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb above the doorpost, that as the angel of death came throughout Egypt and killed every firstborn son in every house, that if it had the blood on the doorpost, that would, the angel of death would pass over. Right? So that's where they're getting this name Passover. During the season, during the celebration, the festival of Passover, every single Jew would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This included, obviously, Jesus and his disciples who were Jewish. So all the Jewish people descend on Jerusalem for this major, major festival that's been going on for thousands of years, and also any Gentile converts to Judaism would also come. So any Gentiles, any pagans who had been converted into Judaism they would also come. In other words, this event that we saw dramatized in this video and that we just read about as John records it in John chapter two, this event, this cleansing of the temple as it's come to be known over the years, did not take place during a quiet time in Jerusalem. This was not an off season, right? This was not a time where there was nobody really around, right? This is a big deal. There are as many people in Jerusalem at this time as there would have ever been throughout the year the most intense time in this city where it was buzzing with activity. What happens here would be similar to if I went to the Iowa State Fair on opening night and just started turning over the corndog stands, right? I'm just running through there with the whip, turning over corndog stands left and right. Like, I don't, I don't know why that one came to mind, but corn dog stands, right? There's tons of people. It's an apex thing, and corn dogs are the primary thing, right, of the Iowa State Fair, and I'm just disrupting everything. So that's the setting you have to imagine here is this is not a quiet time. This is a very, very vibrant city that's bustling with activity, and this is when Jesus makes this massive scene. 
Verse 14, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. The background here is so incredibly important. First of all, purchasing animals was necessary for all Jews in order to make atonement for their sins. This dates back again to the Old Testament, which we'll get to in a second. Just like during the first Passover, and according to the scriptures, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So they had to purchase these animals. It was part of their tradition. It was a God mandate, right, directly from God. Leviticus 17.11 says this, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves. Atonement, think of it this, at one minute to bring reconciliation between man and God. This was the way they did this prior to Jesus, was to ensure right standing, was to make atonement, at one minute. I've given this to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Later in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews, commenting on this regarding to how Jesus changed things, says, in fact, the law, the Old Testament, requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So they were required to purchase animals, to make sacrifices, so they could be in right standing with God. But here's the catch. People were not allowed to bring in animals from the outside because somewhere along their journey, whether they were coming from near or far, there were any number of different things that could potentially happen to these animals that could make them ceremonially unclean. You understand if you've the scriptures that these lambs, in this case, or whatever they were, right, they had to be spotless. They had to be perfect. They could not be like you're sick, you're feeble, you're weak, you're diseased, any of those things. Those were not acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. They had to be flawless. And there were so many things within the journey, so many things in the Old Testament law that could make these animals unclean. So you couldn't risk that because you'd be in big trouble. So you had to purchase your animal there in the temple. You had to buy an animal from what amounted to the temple gift shop, right? But there's more. You could only purchase this animal with Jewish currency, which you're like, well, why is that a big deal? Because the primary form of currency in circulation was Gentile. So you had to make an exchange. If you had Jewish currency, I'm sorry, you most likely had Gentile currency that was occupied by the Romans. It was mostly Roman currency, but the temple, they wouldn't accept that. There's a whole lot more of the political socio-dynamic with that, but they wouldn't accept it. So you had to take your Gentile Roman currency, and you had to make an exchange to get Jewish currency, then to purchase the animal that they had waiting for you there. You're stuck, right, on some level. You must offer the sacrifice or you're not right with God. And you must take it on their terms, which wouldn't be fundamentally a problem except for there was massive corruption in the temple system and massive corruption amongst the priests. And the priests actually used this to their advantage to make money. They actually would prey on the people on the requirements of the law, and instead of being gracious and just and righteous, they were corrupt and used it to make money. I'm so glad this never happens anymore. What was going on would be like going to name your amusement park and being sort of willfully extorted, right? So Lincoln and I, this past summer, we did a little day thing where we went to Worlds of Fun and Oceans of Fun. I hadn't been down there in forever, and it was a blast. But at some point, we're like, we've got to get something to eat. They won't let you bring anything in. 
So we're walking along, and I just happened to notice, because Boulevard Beer, right? It's a Kansas City brewery. Boulevard Beer was for sale. A single can, a 12-ounce can of Boulevard Wheat, right? $12. $12. And we went to this, like, restaurant that's kind of like a burger fries type place. And I looked, and I'm like, oh, that's not bad, like 12 bucks for a cheeseburger. But that's all you get. Fries, $6. You want a drink? $6. So Lincoln and I got burger, fries, drink, and we're spending like 24 bucks each, right? You're being like willfully extorted. What choice do you have? Like you're stuck, you're hungry, you know, you've been riding the raging, well, not the raging river, whatever they call it down there, you know, all these different things. You've got to get something in your system. This is what was going on in the temple. Some New Testament scholars estimate that the priests uh, were pulling down nearly $300,000 per person per year on this alone. If you took what they were making and you translated it into 2023 dollars, $300,000 of income they were generating for themselves through this sort of extortion. The people knew the system was corrupt. They knew it, right? Just like you know when you go to Worlds of Fun, you're like, I'm gonna pay $12 for a cheeseburger or whatever. But they had no power to change it, none whatsoever. Move on to verse 15. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. So you saw the video. This was chaotic. Think about the disturbance this would have caused. Think about all the records this would have messed up. Every single person there has a bookkeeper. And as somebody comes in with Gentile Roman currency and they're making an exchange, everything is noted and the coins are assembled in certain ways. Imagine, a, you know, sort of a 2,000 years ago cash register, right? There's a very thorough accounting system because they're corrupt. They also want to make as much money as they possibly can. They don't want any money, right, to get lost somehow. So they're stacking the coins. They're putting all these things in order. They're keeping all this accounting of everything, and Jesus comes in, and he makes this whip, which wasn't for the people, by the way. It was to drive the animals out. People were like, oh, Jesus was violent. He hit people with a whip. No, he did not. He drove out the animals. That's how you get animals moving. We all know that, right, being from Iowa. But he's taking these tables of individual vendors, and they have all their stuff, and he's just going, whoosh. And he's going to another one, and he's going, whoosh. And coins are flying everywhere. And he's doing this to every single one. And at that point, nobody has any idea how much, how are you going to figure out whose money is whose? How are you going to figure out how much, you, you know, how are you going to do that? Right? It was a melee. And he's driving the animals, so you're worried about your animals that you're selling getting out too. And meanwhile, your coins are being flipped over. This is kind of a big deal. Right? It's kind of a big deal. Jesus, meek and mild. Just, just a chill guy. No, he is with a whip and flinging things everywhere, right? Money would have been everywhere. Imagine trying to herd all these animals back after they've been released. And then there were people everywhere. There's tons of people. Animals are running wild, right? Coins and money is being scattered. There's a guy with a whip. Half the people don't even know who he is at this point, right? What's going on? Jesus just cost a bunch of people a bunch of money. Right? So here's our first truth. We're really going to shift gears here in a minute. But our first truth is this. At times, God will set things in order by messing them up. At times, God will set things in order by messing them up. I want you to hold on to that thought today because it's really the key thought. 
for the day. Let's go to verse 16. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house. Now that's blasphemous right there. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So he speaks to those selling doves. So cattle, sheep, and doves. Doves were the alternate sacrifice for the poor. Cattle and sheep, you could afford those, that's what you would go to. But God made provision in the Old Testament that those who were poor, who could not afford, you know, the top-tier sacrifice, could still make atonement with God by purchasing doves, very cheap. Think about, think of them less as doves and more as pigeons, okay? So that's kind of what they were like. Interestingly, doves being the alternate sacrifice to the poor, so the lowest of the lowest of the low, we note in the Gospels, when Jesus was brought to the temple on the eighth day for his circumcision and presentation to the priests, Joseph and Mary were only able to afford doves. So they were poor. They couldn't afford for the right king of the world, the Messiah. They chose the alternate sacrifice for the poor. Just an interesting thing. But here Jesus describes the temple as being the house of God. He says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. He's saying, this place, this temple, this is the house of God. It's where God dwells. And he was right. That was a place where God had chosen, right, for his presence to be. He wasn't saying that the temple in and of itself was a bad thing. How could it be? The presence of God dwelt there. It had shifted in the Old Testament, right, from the Ark of the Covenant so now it's a much larger temple with all kinds of different layers to it. We won't go into that this morning. But he wasn't saying the temple itself was the problem because the presence of God was there. He actually calls it my father's house. He was saying that what was being done in the temple was the problem, right? He wasn't saying that the system of animal sacrifice was problematic or inherently corrupt. How could it be? It was mandated by God. It had been practiced for thousands of years. That was the right thing to do. Joseph and Mary abided by the sacrificial system, right? There was nothing wrong with that. What was wrong was the way it was being handled. What was wrong was the way that people were taking advantage of others for personal gain. Verse 17, if you're following along still, then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. This is in the Psalms of David. Zeal for your house consumes me. I absolutely love that verse. There's, that's only actually half of it. You can see up there, Psalm, I'm sorry, next slide. This is quoting Psalm 69, 9, where David says, For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. It gives me chills when I read this because this is way before Jesus ever came and they recognized in this moment, which is unusual for the disciples. Can we acknowledge that? It's unusual that in the moment they had any clue what was actually going on. But here they actually were a little bit lucid. They were aware, right? They had clarity out and they're like, this is that, right? This is what David was talking about when he said, zeal for your house consumes me. Some translations say, and the reproach that falls on you falls on me as well. So powerful. This is what I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning talking about. 
is Jesus' passion for his father's house. Verse 18, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, which seems like a a while, maybe a little long. And you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. Note something here. It's slight, and you will miss it if we're not careful, but it's incredibly significant. Note the switch that's taken place here in a matter of a couple verses, in the matter of a short, brief conversation. Jesus first refers to the temple as the house of God. And now, verse 21, he refers to himself as the temple, as the house of God. It's a switch. Again, it's subtle, but it's massive in its significance. Jesus refers to himself as the place where God dwells, the place that God inhabits, right? Implications of this can't be overstated. This shift from the presence of God being in the ark in the Old Testament, not Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant, from it being housed in essentially what's a very small box, but it's still a box. It's a man-made thing directed by God, but it's man-made. And then for the rest of time, between that time and when Jesus shows up, then they had the temple. The temple was much bigger, much more elaborate. Like I said, many layers, and there was a lot going on there. But still, the presence of God is housed in an inanimate object, right? It's not a living, breathing thing. The presence is, but the presence is still housed willingly by God in this temple. And now Jesus says, hey, something is shifted here. Something is shifted. The presence of God has always been housed in these different places, and it was beautiful, and God willed it, and it was important. But now something is shifted. Now the presence of God inhabits me, and I am among you, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. Right? And God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is making some radical statements here. It's a big, big, big deal. Jesus is saying that he's a walking temple, that he housed God. The word, as I said, became flesh. And then after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he ascends, right? Disciples watch as he ascends into heaven. And as soon as that ascension happens, another switch takes place, and it's just as radical, if not more radical in a lot of ways. So the presence of God, the temple of God in the Old Testament is in the Ark of the Covenant, and then it's in the New Testament temple. Then when Jesus comes, it's in him. He is God in the flesh, right? The incarnate God. And then he lives his life. He's crucified and buried, but then he's resurrected, and he appears to many people after that. And then he ascends, and now something crazy happens. Following this temple theme, Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us, his church, that now We are the temple that you individually and collectively, but you individually, you are the temple of God. That's a radical thing. It's a radical thing. I'll give you multiple scriptures, okay, about this. Stick with me. We're almost done. Genesis 1, 
Do you know that you're the temple of God and that you literally, though you're not God, certainly, you literally house the Trinity. You are a breathing, walking, whatever else you do in your life, temple of the Trinitarian God. We find this from the very beginning in Scripture. I don't have these on the screen, but in Genesis 1, we have what's known as the Imago Dei. You are the image of God. That's what that means, the Imago Dei, the image of God. God says, let us create man and woman in our image. And he created them in his image, right? So you have the Imago Dei. We are all created in the image of God. So that right there is basically the Trinitarian part, but there's the Father specifically, right? You are created in the image of God. Second, Romans 8, Paul gives this beautiful theological treatise, the most powerful, articulate, descriptive theological treatise in all of human history in the book of Romans. And really, he starts getting into some deep stuff in Romans 4. And Romans 8, it just is the culmination. If you've never read Romans 8, basically, that's all you need. (laughs) If you had to only have one chapter of the Bible besides any of the Gospels, and you had Romans 8, you'd be set. But in that chapter, Paul makes radical statements. And the thing that he says that's maybe the most radical is this. He says, if we have the same spirit in us that raised Christ from the dead— Then he talks about all these things we're supposed to do and how we operate. He's not saying, like, maybe we do, or he's not saying it'd be cool if. He's saying, we, he's making an assumption. We have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead in us. So now you have Genesis 1, the Imago Dei. You're created in the image of the Father. Now you have Romans 8. You have the same spirit, Holy Spirit, that raised Christ from the dead living in you. So you got two of the three. The third is Galatians. There's two passages, Galatians 2. In Colossians 3, in Galatians, they're both written by Paul. They're both epistles. Galatians 2, Paul says famously in verse 20, For I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. Colossians 3 says, For you died. He says, For you died, and now your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ appears, you shall see basically yourself as you really are, which is in the image of Christ. So Genesis 1 and Mago Day, Romans 8, the same spirit, Holy Spirit, Galatians 2 and Colossians 3, Jesus. You've been crucified with Christ. If you're a Christian, you no longer live. Christ lives in you. I just talked to a great friend of mine on Friday about these passages, and I told him, and I used his name, and I said, dude, you're dead. I said, you're dead. That, you're gone. Don't worry about that, right? Here's who you are a big deal. Have you ever had it put to you like that before? That you house the Trinitarian God, that you are the temple of God? Not in some passive abstract like, oh, that's a cool thought, but no, that scripturally, they took the time to point it out and said, this is who you are. And all these verses, all the ways that Jesus spoke to us and that Paul's writing to us and all this, he's speaking to you individually. So he's saying you individually, insert your name, right? You are this. But he's also speaking to us collectively. First Peter, Peter writes this in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you also, now he's really specific. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he uses temple language. He uses language that his writers would have understood. Peter was an apostle to the Jews, to people who had come out of Judaism and had accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So he's writing to them using language they were familiar with, and he says, you are like living stones. 
how they built temples and houses back then. You were like living stones, and you collectively are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are the temple, he says, collectively. You are the place that houses the presence of God, the place where God dwells amongst the world. And this echoes so much of Jesus' language, right? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. All these things. All right, I'm getting down to the wire. Everybody still with me? I'm getting excited today. I'm excited. It must be this mic, this new mic. It's got some extra mojo in it. So, all right, last this is another truth that I need you just to get. So the first one, hopefully remember that one. Oftentimes God will, right, mess things up in order to, in order to make them straight or in order to set them in order. The next one is that Jesus cleansed, when he cleansed the temple in John 2, Jesus cleansed the temple both practically, because he, he actually did it, it actually happened, but he also did it prophetically. I want to get into that now. I want you to think about that for a second, and I'll explain it. But Jesus cleansed the temple both practically, it actually happened 2,000-ish years ago, in Jerusalem, in the temple, but he also did it prophetically. See, we are the temple, and he knew that we would be the temple. And through his death and his resurrection, he drove out everything in us that was unclean and corrupt. Through his death and resurrection, he drove out everything in us that was unclean and corrupt. His blood purifies us. His blood has washed us white as snow. All the stuff that inhabited us, all the things that were corrupt, that were upside down, that were messed up. He comes in, if we accept him, he comes in and he says, through this, I've cleansed the temple. I've driven out all the stuff in you that's a mess. I've turned over tables. I've made you clean. I've purified you. Right? That we understand as the essence of Christianity, that we are forgiven, that we've been saved. That Romans 8 again, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who believe. But I want to suggest something additional today. Jesus cleansed the temple 2,000 years ago. When you came to Christ, when you decided that you would follow him, he cleansed you again. He made you white as snow. Positionally, he set you up as the righteousness of God. But I'd like to suggest something else. I'd like to suggest, and this is on the screen. This will be a big one if you're a, a phone picture taker or a note taker. I'd like to suggest that Jesus still cleanses the temple. I'd like to suggest that zeal for his father's house, think about it now in who, terms of who you are and who we are, that zeal for his father's house still consumes him. And I'd like to suggest that Jesus is still in the business of turning over tables. He does this, we're talking about this series, the love of God and the fear of God. He does this not because he's upset with us or because he finds us loathsome in some way and he can't believe how bad we are. He does this because he loves us. Zeal for his father's house, passion for his father's house still consumes him. He still wants it to be a place that is pure and undefiled. He still wants it to be a place that is holy. He still wants the presence of God to be the thing that's the most manifest in us. 
And it can be hard for us to get our minds around that because we're often beholden to modern definitions of love. When we think about love, as I said at the intro to this series, we think of it oftentimes as sort of this rubber stamping any and all behavior, the condoning of any and all behavior. Let me give you my modern, def- this is just my modern or definition, excuse me, of modern love. This is how our culture defines love. The condoning of any and all behaviors the object of our love wants to engage in so that we might not stifle their ability to live out their truth, regardless of how harmful, destructive, or morally corrupt said behavior might be. That's what we think of when it comes to modern love. That it's just sort of like this, I'm, not gonna, I'm just gonna like let you do your things. I love you and I don't wanna inhibit you or I don't wanna restrict you in any way, shape, or form. So even though I find what you're doing completely repulsive, <laughs> completely off track, you're getting away from what you're supposed to do, I love you. And so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna love you and be like okay with it. That's not the love of God. It is not the love of God. It's not the love of Jesus. And if you thought that the love of God just equals all this flowery, you know what I mean, sunshine and rainbows and kitty cats and all this kind of stuff, like that's cool. He loves us radically, right? He has an incredible level of love for us, but it's not modern love. It looks vastly different. It's hard for us to get our minds around that kind of stuff. Psalm 103, the primary definition of God in the Old Testament, some people think, oh, the Old Testament God, we're going to talk about this some next week. You know, he's just this violent, angry thing. That's, it's just not true. People that say that have not read the Old Testament because the primary thing that's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament is summed up in Psalms 103.8 where it says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. But again, you have to think about what is the definition of love? What does the love of God actually look like? Is it modern love or is it something different? And I'd like to suggest that yes, God loves us gently and he loves us tenderly with compassion and kindness and patience. Has anybody ever experienced the radical patience of God in their life, right? The kindness of God in their life, the goodness of God in their life. He does all those things and there's zero doubt about that. That's why we can sing songs like how he loves and it's absolutely true and absolutely needed but he also loves us fiercely. He also has zeal for his father's house. Passion for his father's house still consumes him. I love what Rich Mullins says in his song, The Love of God. He says this, there's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find on my own. And he keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone keeps me aching with a yearning, keeps me glad to have been caught, and I love this, in the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. We think if anything challenging comes along in our lives, anything that causes us to struggle, to wrestle, anything that makes us uncomfortable, that it must be from the enemy. We have something going, we're, we're rebuking it. Get out of here, you foul devil. Like, I rebuke you right now in the name of Jesus. I am not supposed to be uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form. My life is not supposed to be disrupted. Get it behind me, Satan. Or we're praying to God, something hits us, and we're like, God, God, get me out of this right now. And God's response is, get you out of it. It took me three years to get you into this situation. 
so that I can deal with in you what needs to be dealt with. No, you're not coming out of it. No, you're not coming out of it. There's a fairly common preaching story, the premise of which is that when a lamb goes astray, a shepherd would seek out the lamb if it kept doing this, right, and break its leg. The purpose of breaking the leg was that so the shepherd could tend to the lamb, nurse it back to health, and as he tended to the lamb, it would become bonded to him and never stray again. It would be taught, don't do that, right? And usually preachers connect this to God, permitting bad things to happen to us so that we might turn to him for help and become more closely bonded to him. But the reality is that no evidence exists that such a practice ever occurred among shepherds. And there is evidence that such a strategy would not have produced the desired result. But what shepherds have, and this is where you're going to find this funny, but it's actually true. What shepherds have been known to use, and this is where the mistranslation takes place, is what's called a leg break. Not B-R-E-A-K, B-R-A-K-E. So they didn't break the lamb's leg. They put a break on it. This is in the Greek, brachius. It's the exact same word where we get the word brakes for our car. Not brake as in break a leg. It's essentially a slightly burdensome weight that's attached to the leg of a sheep who likes to wander. This leg break prevents the sheep from wandering too far before the shepherd notices if it's prone to wander, he puts this brake on it so that even if it tries to scamper, this thing slows it down so he can't get too far. And even if he does, he's a lot easier to catch. As the sheep remains near the shepherd, then it learns to trust him, and within a fairly short period of time, that leg break is removed. Let me invite the worship team to come up at this time. Anybody ever had the brakes put on you in your life and thought, God, get me out of this? And then six months later, you're like, oh, man. Yeah, I needed that. <laughs> yeah, I see, I see why. We're not talking about, right, getting cancer. We're not talking about, like, a horrible tragedy. I want you to understand that. You know that's not our theology. We're talking about what Jesus himself and the author of his New Testament said is how God works amongst us. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. We talk about this verse in terms of abiding, but there's a, another thing in here that's important to catch. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So that's like, you don't wanna be that, okay? While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. I do not know much about trimming stuff, plants, trees, whatever. But I do understand the principle of pruning, that sometimes even though it's growing and it's growing in good ways, things get tangled, things get in the way. And in order for it to grow bigger and stronger and more stable and more evenly and to flourish even more, parts need to be trimmed off. We're not even necessarily here talking about sin. In fact, this really isn't talking about sin. This is just talking about things that need to be removed, that need to be stripped away. You're actually doing a good job. This is actually a reward from the Lord, right? So when something comes along, it's hard for us to look at it that way, but if we're being pruned, it's like, oh my gosh, what an honor. Like I'm producing fruit and he loves me so much that he wants me to produce more fruit and he believes that I can. And yeah, this stinks, but like I can trust in him. Hebrews 12, five through eight says this, and have you completely forgotten the word of what? 
encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. And it says, my son, you can put daughter in there. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? You can put mother in there. Are you not, and if if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. I told the same friend on Friday that I was having the conversation with, I said, look, here's the deal. If you've been going through your Christian life for like five, 10 years, and you're just like, I really haven't had a lot like going on. God hasn't really challenged me. I wanna, you know, do a little bit of a, like a checkup. <laughs> You're like, uh, why is that? Because <laughs> it says he disciplines those he loves. So here's the thing. He wants to do this in your life. He loves you and he wants to turn over tables in your heart. He wants to drive out idols you didn't even know you had. He wants to drive out things that aren't necessarily sinful, but that are getting in the way. The good news for this is that he will do it He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We don't have to do it ourselves. We can't drive out our own, right, idols. We can't turn over our own tables. So I'd invite you to invite him to turn over whatever tables need to be turned over in your life. It might be messy at times. It might feel chaotic and disorganized. Why? Because oftentimes God's idea of order looks different than ours. You may be having something going on in your life right now where God is really turning over some tables, where he's really upsetting the money changers in your heart, where he's driving things out and you're sitting there going, what is going on? He's painting something, but I have no idea what that is. (laughs) And it's been going on for a long time and I feel like we're almost to the end here. Not necessarily like your life is over, but like, I don't know how much more of this I can take. I promise you, I promise you from experience, if there is something going on like that in your life and he is pruning you and he's disciplining you, that at just the right time, he will flip that thing. And you, in a moment, usually it happens and you will see the beautiful thing that he has created. The beautiful picture that he is painting in your life and with your life. Let me end with this quote, C.S. Lewis. Says this, imagine yourself as a living house. See, Lewis even invokes this language. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing it and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building up a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Let's pray, and I have a prayer on the screen. 
that I would like you to pray and I'll pray it. Let's just pray that together and close your eyes. Well, I guess maybe keep them open so you can see this. I, I know it because I wrote it, but we should all pray it together. Look at it. Let's just pray this together. Lord, if I have any tables that need turning over, I invite you to come and do it. But please be gentle. Amen.